Hello and welcome to Stories by the Wayside, a podcast by Wayside Chapel. My name is John Owen and I've been the pastor and CEO of Wayside Chapel since 2018, but I've spent my life creating a community with no us and them. This podcast is a tribute to love and belonging, loneliness and loss, and the rich kaleidoscope of chaos that comes when life is lived from the gutter up. Every episode, I invite friends from the wayside for honest, big-hearted conversations about the crisis of disconnection in these overwhelming times. Our guest today is a good friend of mine and a resident of King's Cross for over 30 years. He served for seven years on our board and is currently chair for the Neura Foundation, but his life has been no bed of roses. He grew up in a home surrounded by mental illness and violence, and he still bears the scars from years of schoolyard bullying and as a young gay man growing up in a white, macho rural community in the 1980s, he's got plenty to share. His 20s were a chaos, fueled by anxiety and drug addiction. Then decades later, after getting back on his feet, he wanted to help others and got involved with The Wayside. Today, we talk King's Cross history from the darker moments of police bashings of the LGBTQIA plus community in the 1970s and the Bondi Cliff murders of the 80s to the high points of hosting Pride events in 2023 and seeing rainbow flags on every corporate street corner. We'll touch on intergenerational trauma and how money and workaholism was a way to escape the past and to make himself invulnerable to hurt. So let's get started, hey? We want to hear the story about Wayside, but we also want to hear about King's Cross and your memories, because everyone has different memories around different eras. So when would you have first come into King's Cross? What brought you there? And what are your memories of the place? Yeah, so I had a lot of amazing fond memories of the cross, actually. Um, lots of stories that are probably censored for this uh, podcast, but... but, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> just just let, let us know what you're comfortable with letting us know and uh, we'll chop out the rest. Well, let's be honest. The, co- the cross was a lot of fun back in the day. You know, it's... it's We're it's, talking it, what, what decade? Well, I, I, I first moved into Willamaloo uh, as a resident in, um, in, in kind of like the early 90s. And so I've been a resident of Willamaloo and then Potts Point, King's Cross, Lizard Bay for... Uh, for those last what thirty something years, and so I'm a fifty five year old guy, and so it's it's all my adult life really. But it was a very different place, right? You know, and and Maclay Street is now you know arguably the most expensive street in the country, allegedly, and it's and it's, it's delightful. It's a beautiful kind of thing, but it's kind of become Mayfair really of London. You know, it's you know it used to be edgy and interesting, and it's kind of lost that. It's got this. It's just it's full of money and whatever. But it had back, the artists and the Bohemians and the hippies and, and the beatniks. Exactly, and it was it was interesting for that actually. Um, but it was also dangerous, you know, and it, and it did have a lot of street crime, and it did have you know sex workers on every corner, uh, all the way down Maclay Street to the very bottom to the Navy base. And of course, the history of King's Cross was it was in the Roaring Forties. It was a very upmarket nightclub district, and then, you know, the Navy moved in, and they uh, and the girls moved in to provide services to the to the to the Navy base and so on. Um, but it was uh, also and then in the seventies, post Vietnam, uh, the returning sailors brought in the heroin as well. And my next point was going to be, yeah, the drug stuff was huge. It was everywhere. Uh, and that made it also dangerous in a cash society. It's now a cashless society, so that's mm. changed the dynamic, of course. But um, I think at that time too, there was the ugly side of it, the dark side. Mm. There, were, there were overdoses everywhere um, commonly. You'd see bodies. You'd see, you know, people struggling and needing needing help. You'd see uh, every day coming out of my apartment, there'd be, you know, many needles on the street. That's all cleaned up. That's all gone and, and for better or worse. 
but you know the night venues were there and the and the and the and the booze culture and the all night partying and and, and whatever i i kind of worked hard and played hard but i was also a very lost person so the cross was a great place for people who were lost who were just mm. wanting to go out and find fun and go out and find kind of people men women you know um partying non-partying kind of chats weirdos like whatever you wanted was kind of available and I imagine that's somewhere else in the country. I don't know where, but it's no longer the cross, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned moving in in the early 90s. That's also probably the time we would associate in Sydney, particularly in King's Cross, as probably the height and the peak of the AIDS HIV epidemic. you have memories of that time? I have a lot of memories of that time. Um, as a gay man, I um, found my people, if you will, in a way. I never was kind of that involved in, in a way in the gay community, but I did do the Oxford Street stuff and the and the and the venues and the clubs and the you know the saunas and the whole thing that was part of that culture in my like late teens, early twenties. But I remember in in I think it was 83, 84, I did go to 13 AIDS related funerals. Mm-hmm. And for someone who was in their early twenties, it's kind of confronting, right? Um, and so they were, they were friends, all friends of friends. And but I remember it was uh, a pandemic, and it was uh, a very cruel and targeted pandemic, um, in that it was mostly drug users and 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 gay people, and then of course bisexuals who carried it into the broader community. So I was there, but the grace of God, go oh, I never got HIV or AIDS. You know, it was uh, it was a very horrible time for a number of years, and I think what it did to society. Sadly, was also made sexuality uh, again a taboo. It again pushed all kinds of different forms of sexuality and expression of sexuality underground. Mm. It made being gay or bi or uh, God forbid trans or anything else unacceptable. Mm. Um, and and people that set us back uh, until maybe when marriage equality happened five years ago. That set us back decades of being able to be equal in society. Yeah. Not, not everyone would remember that time, but it, it, some of the hysteria and the hype was certainly being fueled by the mainstream media. How was that being experienced in, in your local community? It's an interesting question, John. I, I think, you know, the minorities have always been an easy, cheap shot of, of certain quarters within mainstream media. And whether you're LGBTI or coloured or disabled in some form or, or whatever. I don't know if I can give a direct answer uh, to the question, actually, whether I felt impacted by mainstream's coverage of those issues at that time. But I do remember that that uh, we're talking the damage done to be excluded in society is immeasurable. And I still suffer today from what the exclusion and the feeling of that exclusion mm. felt like. And even though... Marriage equality is now a done thing in this country. It's not in many countries, but I still suffer all sorts of issues which I know are mostly around the rejection I had Mm. for my sexuality and that that rejection becomes a lifelong uh, concern to to overcome, to be trusting of other humans again and to be not lonely and to be included again in society. World Pride was recently celebrated a few months ago and it was wonderful to see how most of Sydney embraced diversity and acceptance of the LGBTQIA plus community and rainbow flags everywhere, which were seen as symbols of pride, of happiness. And I can't help but contrast it and say, we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Look, there's no doubt, John, that there's, that was a uh, an incredibly powerful example of what can be achieved in just a few decades from police on the streets bashing and arresting people for who they were in their sexuality only in the 70s to 
having gay pride, world pride, just a few weeks ago in this in this this city where literally, as you say, there were rainbow flags hanging off every corporate headquarters and proudly so, and every conservative bank and other organisation had that going on. You could not escape it as a Sydney person that that we were a proud city for expression of sexuality in all its forms. So yeah, incredible progress, um, and and a credit to to just the, the thousands of people who sacrificed so much mm. to campaign for that for so yeah. long. Beginning with our 78ers, moving through to this day. Absolutely. Many years ago as a young guide botherer, I uh, used to run these things called beach missions, believe it or not, and uh, you'd run to a caravan park and you'd leaflet these caravan parks and you'd say to all the parents, while you sit back and relax and enjoy your summer holidays, we'll teach your kids uh, a few songs and a few Bible lessons. And I ran this this little group uh, back in Anglesey. Uh, back in the in the late 90s and got to follow through with a lot of the young guys I, I met through that time and it was a delight of mine when I accepted the role at, at Wayside to bump into one of those young guys who's now about my age, mid-40s, prominent leader in the gay community living around Potts Point and so we catch up regularly for coffee and, and recently he he stopped me and he said, look, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now and he said there's a missing generation. I'm looking... 10, 20 years down the track for my mentors and my elders and they and they simply aren't there. And he's really worried about him and his generation, about how they're going to make it through the next few years. He sees there's quite a mental health crisis in, in the gay community. Is this something you've observed or resonate with? Yeah, right. So let's dive in there, John. I, I have a very conflicted relationship with my sexuality and it's premised on a number of things. I don't know if any human being if you're really deep and truthful with yourself, is a thousand percent complete with their sexuality. I think that's a bit boring, but but maybe some people are. I think that there is fluidity to it. You know, I've been with the same man for 27 years, Matthew, who, whom you know, is a delightful human being. We've been married since we were allowed pretty much the whole time, five years. But, you know, I, I think sexuality is still still a very personal thing and, 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 and somewhat changeable. I question how much I ever got to be with any of the gay politics stuff, mm. as much as I've just expressed to you how acceptance and inclusion and not experiencing being another and not experiencing loneliness, especially because of whom you are and sexuality being a key part in my life, it's never been a neon light on my face that, no. hey, I'm about sexuality mm. or I'm gay. That's that my identity as a human being is my name and 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 what I stand for. And first and foremost, I care about very big humanitarian issues and very big global issues. And that's kind of drives my life more than my own kind of community needs, maybe, if you will. So look, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't, mm. I don't, um, I don't, I, I don't have a lot of gay friends per se. I don't have a lot of young gay friends. So I don't know how they're adapting to their new world um, that's so different to what it would have been for me 20, 30 years ago. He, he's really looking for models for how to uh, what the next decade looks like for his life or the next two decades and so he's saying I'm, I'm a bit adrift because I, I can't find them because they're, most of them are in cemeteries now and so he's, um, he, yeah, well. he, he's really, really struggling to find as a leader in the community who people come to and look up to is uh, he's looking in, into the, uh, on the precipice of his 50s wondering about what's next. Still the stats remain that if you're a young queer person growing up, you're, you're four times as likely to attempt to take your own life. You are five times as likely to experience some sort of mental health problem as you 
grow up into adulthood and you're four times as likely to self-harm, engage in self-harm. So these are pretty damning statistics and you've got a passion for exploring ways that we can be looking at uh, and addressing our mental health. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, those stats are, are revealing and they are sadly all true. Um, and for your listeners right now, it beggars belief that they're the stats in this country with the kind of acceptance that we have mm. comparatively. Can you imagine being in no, a sub-Saharan African yeah. country? Can you mm. imagine being in Saudi Arabia or some other Middle Eastern country that's got um, uh, such – the stats are just – 10 times what you just read, right? But look, you know, the, not to take anything away from those that are listening or, or those that are, are suffering um, around this question, um, uh, you know, and, and there's there's many others and other categories, if you want to term it that way, of humans that suffer for, for reasons of difference. Um, but for me, the... I've tried to not have my sexuality be my sexuality so many times and and it just doesn't work <laughs> and it's not a choice for me and to have it suggested that it's a choice is harmful and 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 damaging and so you know I grew up in a a, a, a tightly religious family environment in the country and it was just a redneck environment and it was absolutely not okay to be who I grew up to be and so with that backdrop, um, I can see why those stats are what they are mm. because if something so fundamental needs to be a secret for some of your life or, you know, and then from there it becomes an issue of trying to change who you are that's fundamental to who you are and from there it becomes a, a matter of self-hatred and, and, and rejection of yourself, let alone what your parents or your other family members or friends or society says about it. And certainly when I grew up, there were no, there were no examples anywhere that being attracted to the same sex was in any way normal or acceptable. Um, you know, there's more of that available to us in our society today, I think. You know, you see film and television and billboards and advertising stuff that occasionally includes same-sex couples as a representation that actually it's cool that you are this way and yet we want to sell you some soap powder now um, <laughs> or a car. I mean, seriously, there's, there's, but you think about it, right? So for heterosexual people, um, this is a bit like a fish in water because mm. if you're heterosexual, I might suggest that for this issue, you may have other issues for sure. Everyone has issues. But for the, this particular issue that is so fundamental to one's identity and one's self-love and respect, mm. until you're a fish in that water, you don't know what it's like. And to have something so out of hand about you that's so fundamental, rejected, you end up with stats of, of people wanting to harm themselves, wanting to take their life, wanting to um, having depression and anxiety-related issues and so on and so forth. So... I don't know what more I can say about it. John, I think there's improvements happening. Mm. I think we're becoming a more tolerant and inclusive society. There's lots of evidence for that. Um, but there's still lots of evidence for we as humans just have a real hard time getting over ourselves about just letting other people be, right? Absolutely. There's a normative standard and I, I resonate with your story in a small way, being a, a man of colour growing up in Australia through the late 70s, early 80s and every image on TV was of a, a white heterosexual couple with two children, a boy and a girl with blonde hair and, and blue eyes and the billboards were awash with similar images and the rugged Marlboro man <laughs> was probably the roughest one out there. And all of a sudden I believe it was the United Colours of Benetton 
Uh, they occasionally would flick up a, a, a half-cast coloured person there. They were one of the first, absolutely, to, to, to see that. I mean, yeah. you could be cynical and say, well, they were commercially astute and, yeah, but they were one of the first companies that decided to actually say, actually, there's a diversity inclusion opportunity here to transform how people view. And, and yes, well beyond the commercialisation of whatever it was they were seeking to perform. I remember as a young kid looking at that billboard saying, hey, I, that's a bit of me in there, maybe, because it, when you grow up in that milieu, as I'm sure you did too, you say, there's something not okay about me. There's something that I have inherently wrong with myself because it never gets represented as an image of uh, power or pride or celebration in this broader culture, in this sea in which I'm swimming. And so I used to stare at those images saying, maybe I'm not as worthless as I think myself to be. I remember that was the beginning for me to begin to realise, hey, maybe maybe it isn't just me. Yeah, and that's a moment I'm sure many of us in that sort of situation can remember when you have that that um, that first aha moment or that that epiphany that actually I'm not the only one in the world that experiences this or feels this way or looks this way. You know, and I I remember um, I went to a high school which was a horrid experience, candidly. Um, you know, for, for anyone, um, shout out to those at Maxville High School on the mid north coast of New South Wales. But back, back in the you know in the early eighties, um, I, I did be a seven and eight at that school, and and um, I just experienced intense bullying that was um, that was so it was daily, it was relentless, um, it was the sort of stuff that has you want to take your life because you just mm. can't cope with it, and it reinforces you're wrong, and it reinforces you don't fit, and it reinforces that your physical state is actually at risk, let alone you're already struggling with your mental and emotional state. Um, and I had other issues going on at home uh, separate to that. So there was no safety at home, there was no safety at school. I was getting bullied for for being different and, you know, the sexuality piece was a core part of that. Um, I didn't even actually understand what my sexuality was or wasn't at that point. I was 12, 13, you know. And those, you know, I didn't play football and, you know, if you're a white macho bloke and a bully, then you got along well in that, in that school. But if you're, you know, and you played rugby or whatever, but if you're anything else, then you were very mm. much excluded. So it wasn't until I moved to the city um, where my dad got a transfer to, to Sydney and um, as, a, as a teacher, as a teacher in that school as it happened. But that gave me a way to disappear into the urban circumstance and take cover. And like if you're a coloured skin, right, it doesn't it doesn't do well to hang out in a white regional community perhaps, but in the city you can kind of disappear and, 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 and cover up your loneliness and cover up your difference and all of that stuff, right? So... Well, listen, I... I sadly had the experience of ultimately internalising the racism that was around me. So I instinctively, once I began to start to go to school and university, there was a little pullback in me uh, where I had um, a kind of fear and a, a dislike of people of colour. Do you think Some that sometimes it. shows up and sorry, we keep going back to homosexuality is... Do you see that internalised homophobia in some of the older members of the gay community? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, so first of all, we've, we've, you know, there's been a lot of um, coverage in the last months around the um, the Bondi Cliff, Bondi to to um, to Bronte Cliff murders, eighty eight um, unsolved the, murders. Yeah. So, and many of those that are, the, the ones that have been solved so far and exposed, which have been some, um, have actually been. Um, people who have come out as gay later and, and, and mostly the, the, the gay bashings and all that homophobia were people mm. who couldn't deal with their own sexuality. There's, that's pretty, there's a lot of psychology that proves that. But 
Um, and for those who are, don't aren't aware of this, there there's currently a royal commission into there's 88 uh, victims of gang bashings around the Bondi area from the 80s and 90s that were never solved or partially solved, but then police soon concluded their investigations. It was gang beatings generally, and you're, you're saying that many of the people who were involved in the as the perpetrators of that violence were themselves gay. That's what's proving to be the case so far, and those that have been solved, I understand. And 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 certainly the police at the time, you know, wrote those off conveniently as suicides and mm. whatever. When um, you know, when it was uh, it was it was gay hatred kind of violence. But look to, to your question, people have asked me, uh, "Am I a homophobic, homosexual?" And and <laughs> not me. I haven't asked you. No, that. you haven't asked me that. But some haven't over times. And 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 I, I can see there's certain gay people who could be seen as that where. You know, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but people like Alan Jones, by example, was you know he's clearly a homophobic, homosexual by his behaviours, and it's very well known he's a gay man. But uh, but if you can't be with your sexuality and you want to hide it all the time, and then one of the ways you hide it is to be anti-gay or anti-homosexual, um, that kind of like adds to the smoke and mirrors to take away from your own sexuality, right? And your questioning of, of who you are. But look, I think in my case, because I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't my front and centre mm. kind of identity, people that were kind of campaigning for, you know, how can you be, you know, whatever and not be, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, actually, I've got causes and issues that I want to take on that are different to that. They're bigger than that for me. But that shouldn't take away from what you're involved in and so mm. on and so forth. So, but look, I, I, I mean, are there, um, I think people who are not comfortable in their own skin will be uncomfortable with it, whatever it is, you know, and, and you need to own who you are and whether that means that you, you know, are, are uncomfortable about uh, your sexuality or, or, or your gender or your colour or your whatever, then uh, plenty of people I think may avoid that are uncomfortable with owning themselves will will occur potentially as the opposite, right? As a reverend, uh, people approach me and often want to make confession even though technically, you know, we, we don't really do that in, in the tradition I mean. Not quite Catholic, I don't think. Uh, no, you don't have not a quite box Catholic, for the whole thing. Sometimes people, are just like they go to a pharmacist and treat them like a doctor, they'll often come up to the... <laughs> The Rev and say, can I can I make confession? And uh, I say, yeah, sure. Uh, you you become a, a bit of a a reverend like figure in in uh, with some in your business community where people do often use it as a chance to to make confession about their sexuality to you. Oh, let's I, not name names. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. I I um I actually hold that role quite fondly. I, I have built a, a a business and a reputation and 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 some mm. success and wealth and stuff around a particular industry and and that industry. Um, I, I, I seem to be one of the few people that own who I am in that regard. And so yeah, I've, I've become counsel to not only people's secrets in that regard, but often their children's struggles and stuff. And through that, have made some really special and intimate friendships. So mm. yeah, I kind of. I just wish though that it was an issue that was just wasn't taboo. You know, I've I've just had a I just came from a lunch, which was why I was late for this chat with Minister Mark Butler, who I think is doing a fantastic job now, National Health Minister, and he was the country's first mental health minister um, under Rudd Gillard Rudd back uh, ten years or so ago. Um, and we just had a chat over lunch then, where where he kind of also feels that mental health is still problematically a taboo conversation, mm. and people just don't want to own up to what's going on for them and and yeah. I think that even you know people who've got I've got three friends at the moment who have who are very high profile who all come and said I've got a trans child right now and you know blah 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 how should I deal with that and I'm like well I don't know I mean just 
be a parent and just run your life and just love them, love them and just tell the community and the industry, you know, what you're, what's, what's going on for you and like, mm. what's the big deal? But for them, it is a really big deal. And it's, mm. you know, sadly, I'd, I'd say for them, I think it's probably almost shameful that they're dealing with this kind of quirky issue at home. I'm like, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's going to remain quirky while we keep it as such, right? So but Exactly. Yeah, you nailed it there. I think that's probably one of the many reasons why we connect so well is, you know, you and I are both pain bearers but also secret holders as well in that. Is it okay if we, we go back to your childhood? Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Right, so, you, you know, you, you, you're 13, 14, you, you, you obviously can sense that you're not quite the same as those around you and, and you've spoken to me before about uh, the experience of um, – Talking about it with your mother and, and what happened subsequently. Yeah, so so um, that's a kind of a, a whole very tricky period. So candidly, John and listeners, I I grew up in a in a household that was a um, I guess a kind of a face value, pretty normal, quasi middle class. Um, my dad was a school teacher and then a school um, deputy principal and a principal. Back in the day, you got moved around high schools by the New South Wales Education Department, depending on what the department needed, not what you wanted. So we kind of moved around a bit. And and in hindsight, I can see that that moving around was probably in most cases good for me because I got to learn new relationships and deal with that disruption. Uh, but for my mum, it was a real a real problem. It was a real struggle. My mum had my older sister, two and a half years older, and then after me, my younger sister. But when I arrived, uh, she'd just been moved to the middle of nowhere in back in the day, up in the mid-north coast of New South Wales, as it was, and away from her family on the central coast of New South Wales, and had no support structures. And, and um, you know, I think mum had probably what, what today would be diagnosed as postnatal depression. Yeah. Back then it wasn't really diagnosed. As I say, I said earlier, I'm 55 years of age. So there were, we've had a lot of advances in, in how we deal mm. with 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 um, care of new mums and stuff perhaps since then. However, early as I can remember, um, my mum was um, incredibly mentally unwell and how that showed up was uh, abuse, candidly, uh, on, a, on a kind of a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, she was self-harming. She was uh, screaming and shouting. She was physical. Um, she would throw herself through walls and downstairs and, mm-hmm. and, um, and sometimes um, I'd be subject to that and other times uh, she'd kind of lock me in my room so I'd be not subject to that kind of the crossfire. You know, then occurred as uh, my dad was always at school teaching and then he taught Aboriginal uh, communities um, who were true and otherwise in their own communities um, after school volunteering for many years. So he wasn't there also during that So he'd get of, home late at nights, even though he was doing amazing work. He was doing amazing work. Um, but from, you know, 3.30 or whatever, when he finished teaching in his high school, he'd then go off with a bunch of other volunteer teachers. Sort of story you don't never really hear about, you know. But he and many other teachers for years went off into the Indigenous community locally to teach volunteer because otherwise those kids wouldn't come to the, mm. the white school. Mm. So by the time he got home at seven or eight, you know, the, the crisis has probably mostly passed, but it would have been chaos for those few hours. So I, I grew up with that kind of tension and anxiety and violence, and I still suffer anxiety today. And after thousands of years, hours of, <laughs> hours of work rather, of, uh, you know, I still have it. But yeah. I then in my early teens, as you just expressed, John realised, oh, hang on a minute, there's something else going on here. And, and that was the, the whole difference piece. And at that point too, I didn't know what difference meant other than I just didn't fit in and felt 
separate, felt lonely and started to notice I was attracted not to girls like all my mates were. And so I pretended to be attracted and have the kind of cool conversations that had you kind of fit in, but it was all, none of it was authentic and it obviously yeah. showed, didn't work. <laughs> but uh, when I eventually, uh, I struggled through my, my, my teen years, we then, we moved to Sydney and, you know, I got through a few years there, but then I eventually decided to let my parents know that, that actually I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, a gay guy and how do you feel about that? And my mother was a religious zealot uh, at that point and yeah, she, tell, tell me about that specifically more than generally. So, you know, my mum... My about about the, you telling yeah, them as well as... Yeah, sure. So I, I think the, the way I describe it is... Okay, so mum had the, these these mental health concerns, pre-welfare, by the way. Um, her mum worked three jobs to pay for yeah. the six kids and the six kids were subject to all sorts of stuff that you can imagine, including sexual violence, from the alcoholic father who was mm. by then separated and eventually was found murdered for his gambling debts and this whole kind of, you know, there's a whole yeah. Hollywood movie in it. But so so traumatised all of them, my mum and her sisters. That was multi-generational yeah. trauma that then I kind of yeah. got. But look, I, I, I came out to my parents and dad, who I thought would be terrified of the whole thing, and it was during the peak of AIDS, he was just like, you know, just keep yourself, you know, healthy, uh, son, you know, and, and oh, by the way, can you not tell my my um, my friends, uh, primarily his teaching colleagues, teaching staff? That, that's about as good as the response got back in those days, wasn't it? Be safe. It probably was. Don't tell my mates. It was. It was. But it upsets me even to of think course. about it now. Yeah. Because you know, he was embarrassed. And, mm. and yeah. But my mum just broke down in tears and 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 she said, oh, that's the worst thing you could ever say to, to me. Either I knew you were going to – I knew there was a risk that you either come home and say you've got a girl pregnant or you come home and you'll say you're gay. And, you know, both were shameful and terrible and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, great. And it was just a, mm. a blanking of the relationship for what seemed to be years. I don't know if it was a decade. It was probably close, but – but my mum today is still alive. She's got dementia mm. now, but she doesn't remember that history so much. She's softened, I suppose. Back then she was incredibly um, against homosexuality. She felt from her church that it was a sin and it was a disease. And, um, yeah, that just doubled down on the, the pain and suffering as a young kid. Then there was the rejection for the sexuality piece and that then led to a decade of loneliness and trying to find myself in, in Sydney, which led to... All sorts of chaos, including, you know, the, the drug exploration and everything else that came with it. You, you said that, you know, not long after you you told your mum, you, you found yourself pretty much on the street. Yeah, I was, I was, it was, it was clear that I wasn't wanted. I wasn't thrown out like you can't have a bed. That was, someone made that clear that never happened. But I was so rejected by my mum that I felt that it wasn't a place I could be anymore. How old were you then? Uh, it was, it was, I was 21 to be fair. So I wasn't like a kid, like a baby, but I, I'd already spent quite a few years in those mid to late teens, pretty unhinged, I think. Um, I did, to be fair, lose myself in making money. I kind of took on for a while making money was going to somehow have me escape all of this. Um, and I was very good it's at It's a it. very common, uh, and you, you are very good at it. It's a very common response is to say, essentially, how do I not feel vulnerable or become impervious to, to hurt. Yeah, and I think John. To be fair, the loneliness uh, that, and I know this is a topic of your podcast series, so I want to kind of keep it grounded in that to some extent. Yeah, but please, I, thank I, you. I, I think, um, you know, I, I still run hundred mile an hour, and I still work as a workaholic largely. Um, even in my volunteerism, it's in a, in it's, it, it, you'd have to put it in the addiction category. 
um, you know, I have other addictions and and work and, and intensity is one of them and it's not healthy and it does have you be separate and lonely as a consequence. So I'm still struggling with that. I'm still dealing with that. I think my the money thing was curious because I had at one point I had nine jobs at, like literally at the same time. I know that sounds impossible, but but um, I can I can prove it at some point. If you, anyone knows you, they'll know that's <laughs> not impossible for you. I was earning more money than my dad at, at, at age 17 and I was very proud of that actually. Um, and he was a school principal by then, um, which says something about how poorly school principals are paid as in society um, and how, how entrepreneurial I might have been at the time. But, but um, and years later, by the way, I challenged my dad about, you know, who I am to him and purpose and other things. And he said, Colin, you never needed to earn lots of money. And you, you know, he just said a whole range of things where I was like, wow, I've, I've been living my life trying to prove myself to my dad in ways that were never important to him. And I've never actually even discussed that with him, give him mm. the credit of actually having a clear understanding around that. Mm. But that aside, uh, I, I know that the, the money thing was curious because I, I think there's a real danger in, in money in so many ways. But I, I really uh, worked around the clock to somehow make enough money. And when I look back at what that was, besides just being so busy, I didn't have to deal with my hurt, my feelings and all of that stuff. This is a true story. It's really sad. I remember in school um, seeing images of Michael Jackson and the bullying thing was intense and yeah. I was year eight and uh, I just remember seeing this throng of bodyguards around Michael Jackson and I thought, wow, if I make enough money, I didn't want to be famous, but I wanted money. And if I could make enough money, I'd get protection and I'd never be bullied again. Mm. And that became my mission. The irony was he was one of the loneliest people on the face of the planet, yet one of the most gifted and talented as yeah. you. Yeah, really, right? So often people come to Wayside on, on the worst, during the worst moments of their lives where the experiences of rejection lead to feelings of alienation and utter aloneness in the universe. And um, what does the 55-year-old say to the 21-year-old? What did he need to hear at that time rather yeah, than what good, he heard? That's a good question because, um, look, I, I know lots and lots now of very kind of successful and wealthy people um, and and many of them are very, very alone, you know. Um, I really truly believe what you believe, John, on this is that we have a loneliness epidemic, you know. We've mm. got – we've become so separate and and – and separate from each other and, you know, I'm sure the COVID pandemic hasn't helped. I'm sure social media is not helping and, you know, yada, yada. You know, I think that the – there's a lot of things going on. I mean, there's a – what would I have said to the, that 21-year-old? That I think that vulnerability is a beautiful thing and, and expressing vulnerability is an attractive thing. That 21-year-old, like I think probably so many 21-year-olds today, was just trying to make it and trying to be cool and trying to fit in. And as a consequence, the opposite, of course, happens. But, um, you know, I think that how do you create sufficient self-love so that you're not lonely even when you're physically alone? Because the truth is if you have sufficient self-love, are you ever really alone? Well, the difference between loneliness and solitude is the ability to just sit and be with yourself. And where there is self-loathing, there'll be a the drivenness factor will kick back in immediately, right? How have you nudged the needle? Yeah, so today I still uh, struggle to be quiet and to be silent and to just be with myself or be... Another reason we connect. <laughs> <laughs> and to be in a space, you know, like you're, you're, you know, you're 
on that beautiful farm that Matthew and I now share a few weeks ago and, and experienced the beauty and the solitude of being in, uh, you know, literally uh, in inverted commas, but in God's country, right, and mm. a beautiful Indigenous country, but down there in the southern tablelands where you just look across the magic of that of our, of our country, um, I'm, I'm finding more peacefulness there than I've ever had in my life, I think. So the physical surrounds is part yeah. of it for sure. You can absolutely go and find that. Um, is that, is that part of the experience of awe? There's, there's research out there that says the uh, regular immersion in you actually realising how small you are and as we sat around that fire there was a blanket of stars and you realise I'm just a speck in the warp and woof of humanity. I'm finding more and more relief in that concept. I think that's a confronting concept in many ways because we, of course... Well, our culture tells us we're the most important part of the totally universe. Right. It's totally, you, totally, and you know, in the in the in the we're a speck not only in the universe, but we're also, you know, in thousands of years of you know evolution and thousands of years, maybe more to come in whatever form that looks like. You know, we're just here a millisecond, and 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 we are insignificant in so many ways. But that's not 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 important. But the humility that can come with that can allow, I think, one not not only to have much more graciousness and humility in life but yeah. ability to impact and, and for the minute we are here, make a difference with that minute, right? But for me, I, I'm, I'm more and more, you know, not disrespectfully to, to you as a reverend, but I, I just find religion problematic. But I find spiritualism really interesting mm. and I'm, I believe in spirit. I believe in, in um, a greater force. I yeah. just don't like organised religion for all of the reasons <laughs> I've grown up with and all the reasons of evidence in the world, I'd argue. But I've tried meditation. I want to keep trying that. You know, next week I'm going to, a health retreat where there's going to be lots of, you know, um, mindfulness and lots of physical exercise and, and lots of, you know, meditation and other things, which I'm going to give it another shot to see mm. if I can start to find um, ways of being peaceful in a healthy way yeah. and being grounded and mm. quiet and with myself only. So, I, you know, for, for those of us that are, have, have grown unsettled, you know, on one hand, you've got ambition and you can get lots of shit done, but on the other hand, that creates internal chaos and yeah. and and lack of peace, right? And ability right. to abuse things, mm. whether it be alcohol or drugs or other yeah. things, to try to kind of like get out of it for a minute, you know? The only way I can really come at religion is in its etymology, which is to be rebound. Unfortunately, organised religion has bound itself to the wrong things, to nationalism, to militarism, to sexism, to whatever it is, ism, that's out there. Whereas and the, to money, the, the, actually, into control, into correct. business, right? Disaster, actually, the etymology of that word is to, to be disconnected from the stars. So hang on, etymology. I'm going to be saying The origin, like, right? I'm just making words up to sound smart. Etymology, yeah, that sounds blah, great. Blah, 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 blah. Etym- it's, you know, the, real, the meaning of the word is disaster is to be disconnected from the stars. And religion at its purest is to rebind us, that we are but a speck of magnificent dust in this universe and where we would say that, you know, we, we really can be about life where we find ourselves necessary, significant but not central to what's going on. There's yeah, a freedom. Got, There's a freedom in that but also a, a disarming part about that too which we, where we have to let go of control and our attempts to control that which cannot ultimately be controlled. And, you know, you raise a really, you know, Fundamental thing, right? So, so for anyone that's that's grown up with any kind of issues around control, you know, one becomes a control freak, right? My life's largely been about control. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not dissimilar to other humans. We've all got that at a level, and, and in some ways, it keeps us from, you know, from keeps us alive, literally, right? Mm. Um, there's a there's a mechanism in that that's that's pretty clever, but but uh, I mean, the thing I'm 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 looking more at now is not only relinquishing that need for control. But also really studying more and more, uh, you know, around the ego. Because if you become so 
I guess, again, for all the reasons we've chatted about today already, you know, if your identity uh, is so squashed and you're so nothing to yourself, you're so not important, the flip side of that, sadly, um, almost, I think, automatically becomes creating that you are important mm. and your life becomes a work around creating yeah. importance. Spot on. And that work, which is not only exhausting um, and may give you fruit results, and I've got some of that, but it won't give you what's missing and it won't give you the fulfillment and it won't, give, it won't fill the emptiness for why you started out on that path in the first place. So how do you become, you know, equal, included, mm. connected, not lonely, not overly important but not underly important mm. is an interesting piece of work in oh, itself. It's you've, just brilliant, Colin. You know, we, you know, love over hate, our vision at Wayside is very much about acknowledging that we, to live in a way that, in the world where love wins over hate is to exist on a narrow ledge between one side individualism, the other side is collectivism and how do you find the healthy and correct balance and, you know, we're always going to slip over one side of the ledger and depending from which side we come from, our our, our, um, our shadow side, our dark side will will always pop up and uh, try and have a go at us. But um, we, um, it's always going to be a tension and I hate to use the word because I've never lived this way but balance... <laughs> It's the key. Yeah, I reject the word balance too and yeah. you know, life's journey and all this cliche stuff. You can see why it's cliche stuff, right? Because there's but some I've value never met in someone it. who I go, yeah, good on you, and who talks about balance. You know, I think there are seasons in life more than balance, right? Yeah, you know, and I think that there's a, you know, I've, I've never met a person that's particularly likeable or particularly interesting that doesn't have lots of shit going on, you know. <laughs> I love it. That's right. You know. Yeah, and you and I get to hang out with the uh, the best and the broken or the totally best of the right. broken, well, we? well, Well, you know, you know, everyone's broken at a level, right? And if they're not, they're just bullshitting it. That's the thing you've got to be careful about. Right? Preach Anyone it, that's so Preach perfect it. and it's got it all made, mm. it's got it all worked out, mm. uh, there's just very few to none yeah. human beings really in that category. So I think be as suspicious of anyone who positions them that way, yeah. sells that way. Yeah, but we also get to have fun with each other, don't we? Like, when you know, you, you saw Reverend Graham Long and he was a good bloke and then I came along and we recently had an experience together. Did you, uh, do you want to share about uh, the, the bull paddock? <laughs> Did you ever imagine? <laughs> yeah, so you, uh, so we're, we're down at, down on my property, which uh, my partner and I kind of made this very wild uh, decision to to buy a, a cattle breeding a Black Angus farm down on the Southern Tablelands uh, eighteen months ago, and so John rocks up um, with a um, a cow suit looking like a dairy cow, uh, white with kind of black dots, and decides <laughs> to walk, but kind of like on four arms legs. Um, up along the paddock where all my bulls were residing and see if he could get them a little bit interested. Um, but um, <laughs> it didn't kind of work out how you'd planned, right? They didn't really. Well, that experience that of, re of rejection continues on, Colin. Yeah. I not, couldn't, couldn't even get a skerrick of interest out of a single one of your not bulls a, dressed one, up. But they, to be fair, they had been um, with the, they had been breeding the previous six weeks. I'm pretty tired. <laughs> So uh, hey, you're we, trying we, to pander to my ego now, Colin. <laughs> they were just uh, they were just put in the paddock on their own uh, only a few days earlier, so they were probably a bit exhausted. But I wouldn't take it personally. I'm sure you never imagined uh, that would be the behaviour of uh, the subsequent reverend uh, heading up the the wayside. No, I know, but I, I want to say there, you know, like I I, I was, uh, you know, you, you asked, could you come down with some um, some of your mates from from your work in in, in Mount George? you know, a decade mm. or so earlier and I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's interesting. And and Matt's like, holy, yeah, how great. So, you know, 
we had, what, 13, 14 people there for yeah. the weekend and sat around a fire for three days and talked. Yeah, us darkies don't come come in single units, mate. We- <laughs> well, I, I, I was, it was a profoundly beautiful um, weekend, so thank you for yeah. that. And I was, you know, I, you know, this is a podcast so you can't see, but I'm, I'm a white guy mm. and probably that's probably obvious in, in having listened to me, but I hadn't had exposure to uh, Indigenous Australians in a powerful way in my adult life. I, re- I worked out candidly and, and I was embarrassed at how much I learned, you know, mm. it was really powerful. And all of them were descendants um, of, of stolen generations. Mm. Um, most of them had, you know, kind of legal histories and or their, their family did, but all had a beautiful being. And, and you know, we, we sat around a fire with, with two guitars and with a didgeridoo player and, and, and looked at stars and had stories and cried a bit and uh, uh, debated and argued out the the, the, the proposed voice, um, which mm. was fascinating. And, uh, you know, it was a very enriching weekend. It was it was a very powerful weekend, and I've got to say, as we spent the day mustering and uh, moving cattle around and trying to find calves that had wandered off, and then we lit the fire as as Matt uh, cooked us up a big feed, and we sat under that blanket of stars. Is there was not a I couldn't feel that sense of loneliness or yearning within me. It was a sense of just community and connection with the land and with the environment and with each other. It was a beautiful moment. So thank you for being such a generous host. <laughs> My pleasure. We have you talked make a point. You make a point actually though that, that what causes you not to have that feeling of loneliness, you know, and you know, and when are the moments that you don't experience it? And mm. I think you just nailed an example of it, right? So, you know, it's not when we're kind of trying to survive and make it mm. and and hustle, right? It's not when we're churning over and over again our disappointment in ourselves or our history or our upset or we're plotting to do whatever in, in the future um, to serve ourselves. It's actually when we're being with one another and letting ourselves kind of mm. be you know, in that circumstance and be vulnerable. And that's when your identity doesn't matter anymore, right? Your business card doesn't matter. Your bank balance doesn't matter. Your history doesn't matter. What you're doing in the future doesn't matter. Because when you're present and you're just being vulnerable with other humans, then suddenly, you know, mm. loneliness disappears. How 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 funny is that? Yeah. Look, <laughs> I reckon that's just a beautiful place to end. Okay. I'm going to have to get you back in because there's so much more to your story and what you've been involved with. You did mention that, you know, you, you've you've not been really a part of uh, the activism within the, the gay community. In fact, you've devoted yourself to charity work quite extensively, not only in Australia but with Wayside you've served on our board for seven years as well as working in sub-Saharan Africa on some exciting projects that we'll have to get you back in to hear about. You know, your, your work has uh, been involved in changing the lives of over 60,000 people, not only here. You're a member of the Order of Australia. You work a board member for Neura, uh, the Neura Foundation, which is the Neuroscience Research Australia, uh, looking to address mental health in new and creative ways or perhaps rediscover some of the ways we suddenly told to think of as bad with some groundbreaking research that's happening there. And you're also a supporter and a fundraiser of groups like the First Nations Foundation, uh, contributor to the Ripple of Hope Awards, the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Foundation. Do you ever stop? I would just like to thank you, Colin Tate, CEO and founder of Connexus Financial, for your time this afternoon. It's a pleasure, John. Privileged to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Big love to you, brother. Our guest today was Colin Tate, the founder of Conexus Institute and the founder and chair of Conexus Financial and well-known philanthropist. Thanks for listening to Stories by the Wayside. My name's John Owen. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories by the Wayside. 
If you love this show, please give it a five-star review. It helps so much in promoting this, but also share it with a friend. If someone you love who's going through a tough time came to your mind while you were listening, please share it with them. Subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories from the wayside. We'll add a link in the show notes. This podcast has proudly been made in conjunction with MIK Made.